inner three that would often accompany Jesus when he would separate himself from the others. And so Peter had a lot of very close contact with Jesus himself. He would have learned some things face to face with Jesus that maybe the others did not get the privilege of hearing. And that was one of the things that made him such an outstanding apostle in the early days of the church. He was one of the first people to go and to proclaim the good news to Gentiles. And he continued to be a prominent figure in the early church, both at Jerusalem and uh, as the church began to spread, it started in Jerusalem and it branched out to places of Asia Minor and Turkey. It made its way into Greece and into Rome. Uh, it ventured south as well into parts of Africa, Alexandria, and places uh, around those regions. And here we are today in Alaska, worshiping God so far from the epicenter of Jerusalem where it all began. But as Peter is writing this, he is not writing to any one particular church, which is why this is often classified as a general epistle, because it was meant to be circulated. You see, he lists out several cities and regions here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's wanting this letter to reach all of the churches. So he's not addressing one particular congregation and their particular issues like Paul does often in his letters, but rather is writing to Christians generally. Uh, but one of the things that you'll see in this book is, as we go through it, is that it is characterized by um, a people who have endured hardship, people who have suffered, which is typical of Christian uh, churches and Christian believers in general. Uh, we have been called to suffering. We'll talk more about that. But in the early stages of the church, not only was there suffering from the highest authority on the planet at that time, uh, the emperor, oftentimes uh, the emperor would make a pronouncement that Christianity was illegal. Uh, Nero, who was probably the ruler at the time of this writing, is responsible for the death of both Peter and Paul, according to tra tradition. And so Peter was believed to be crucified upside down on a cross. And Paul, of course, uh, suffered death at the hands of Rome as well. And it is because of these emperors who did not agree with what was being proclaimed and preached. And they wanted to put a stop to it. You can go through um, the history of Rome and the early church and you'll find several pockets of persecution that flare up. And it's not like every church was constantly being burnt to the ground, but there were regions and occasions where suffering and persecution came into the early church. So it certainly was a part of their early history. Even when they weren't being persecuted, though, they were definitely looked upon as outcasts. Uh, they were looked upon as crazy people. In fact, the early church was called atheists. The believers were. I know it seems weird to us because we characterize atheists as people who don't believe in God at all. But in the early church, they lived in Rome and in Rome and in Greece. They worshipped hundreds of gods, thousands of gods. And Christianity reduced it down to one god. And so for that reason, they were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. And so they were oddballs. And they still are today. And so when we look at what Peter has to say to these oddballs, you can apply it to yourself as the modern church because things tend to repeat themselves and it doesn't look a whole lot different now uh, than it did then, except in some of the little minor details. And uh, this church had to be thinking at this point. So you see, they've 
been able to comb the scriptures. They've been able to look back into the Old Testament and see what God's original purpose was in Genesis. And they've seen humanity fail and fall and to turn from God. But God doesn't give up on people. He continues to reach out and he continues to lay out a plan for restoration. And we know that in the book of Revelation, we see how it's going to end. And even some of the prophets tell you in the Old Testament how it's going to end. So it's a very strange place to be, to know the beginning and know the ending, but you're somewhere in the middle and you've got to figure out how to connect the dots. And so they must have been asking themselves, what is our role here, right here, right now? They look back and they see the Israelites in the Old Testament and they see their failures and the things that they did wrong. Um, And they see the prophets who have prophesied about a key figure who would show up and make things right. And now here the church is and they are on the other side of history from that key figure. He has already showed up. He has already lived a perfect life. He has already died for the sins of the world. He has already ushered in and inaugurated his kingdom that he promised to bring in conjunction with those prophecies that were laid out in the Old Testament. And now he's died, he's risen, and he sits at the right hand of God. And so the early church scratches their head and they say, what now? We thought that maybe this would look a lot better once Jesus came. We've been waiting all this time and he came and he left. And now here we are, a a new fledgling church. And we don't quite always know what to do or know if we're making any progress getting from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to get there, but what do we do? How do we get there? I can relate to that a little bit. You know, right now, as you guys know, we're getting ready for a big move And so we're packing up boxes and we're throwing things in the trash. But there have been times in this endeavor where I walk into my house and the best solution is just to light a match and walk away. I mean, it's just chaos. Things are everywhere. And there are times where I don't even know where to start. I can't sell things because I got to throw things away before I can sell things. Um, but I can't throw things away yet because I don't know what's going and what's coming. I don't, there's so many unknowns that I like walk in circles and I'll pace in my house for two hours just trying to figure out a starting place. And then there are times where I actually get moving on something and I'll spend four or five hours trying to get things in order. And when I've done, I turn around and look and it's worse than when I started. And it's at times like that, you ask yourself, are we ever going to get there? Is this going to pan out? Are we going to make it from point A to point B? And the early church had just as many moving pieces. They had so many questions and there were so many things that they didn't understand about this time period. And that's why people like Paul and Peter show up under the inspiration of the Spirit to lay out some good advice and to lay out some revelation of what to expect and what's going to happen and what their purpose is, what their place is in this thing we call redemptive history. God is working a plan, and you and I are a part of that plan, and Peter's going to help you see where you fit in the plan. And so let's start out here in the opening verses. Uh, The first point that I think Peter is bringing out of this passage, and it's something he'll continue to bring out throughout the book, is that being is not belonging. Yes, the early church was situated in various regions throughout the world. Yes, they were isolated oftentimes, maybe just two or three believers 
constituting a church with no other believers around. Yes, they may have grown up in that same town and they had worked in that town and they had trained in that town and they had family in that town. Yes, they were connected in different ways and they were living out their lives in these cities that are mentioned here. But just because they were there doesn't mean that that's where they belong. And some of you today, you were here, maybe you've lived in Soldotna your entire life, or maybe you're a transplant like me and you've lived here for X number of years. You've got friends and family in the area. You've, you know, shopped at all the local businesses. You're very much connected and tied to the area. But just because you be here doesn't mean you belong here. Okay, the Bible tells us that we are not at home on this planet. We are citizens of another kingdom. When we tasted of salvation, when we gave our heart to Christ, the part that is attached to this world died and we were born again to a new hope, to a new citizenship, to a new kingdom, to a new ruler, Jesus Christ. And it is for him we live and it's for him that is under his reign that we exist. So though you may be in the world, you are not of the world. Though you may live here, you do not belong here. Being is not the same as belonging. Now let's take a look at how he fleshes that out. We look back at the opening statement, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these regions. Uh, maybe your translation calls them exiles. Um, but either way, aliens, exiles, this is language that describes people who are somewhere where they were not originally from. Whether you think in terms of like aliens from space who come and they invade us around every corner, you're looking around for them all the time. If that's the alien you think about, they don't belong here. They may be here, but they don't belong here. Their home is somewhere else. Or maybe you're more politically minded and you think of like illegal alien or something like that. Uh, they're somewhere that is not their country of origin. It is not their home. Well, Christians are in the same way. You may live and have your residence in a certain state in the United States, a certain country, but as a Christian, you are an alien. You are temporarily here. You are an ambassador for heaven. You are the embassy as a church. You are the embassy of heaven. We have embassies across the ocean that represent the United States in those countries. Okay, it, It's not a part of the United States. Like the United States isn't there, but we do have a little, you know, few square feet of space that we can claim our own because we are represented in those countries. Same thing. Heaven and earth are not the same thing, but the church gathered is a representation. It is an embassy of God's kingdom. And where we walk and where we talk and where we share the gospel, we are representing our homeland. And uh, so though you may be here, you do not belong here. Another thing we see in this passage, uh, it says, after it mentions all of the places, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of spirit. Nope, hold on. Oh, I think scattered. Yeah, scattered is the point I wanted to look at back in verse uh, 1 there. Scattered throughout Pontius. Your translation probably uh, may say dispersed. And there is a word that we use, the diaspora, when we talk about 
scattered Jews. When we go back into the Old Testament, we read about the Israelites who lived in the nation of Israel, but enemies came from Assyria, and they came from Babylon, and they conquered. They attacked, and they conquered, and they eventually burnt Jerusalem to the ground. And during all this time, many of the Jewish people were scattered abroad. Uh, The Babylonians took Israelites captive. They chained them up and they hauled them back to Babylon. And there they lived as exiles. There they lived as aliens. And so as Peter's writing this, he's not just using that word willy-nilly. He's connecting the people of God in the New Testament to the people of God in the Old Testament. He's showing them that this isn't something new. This has happened before. And God was with them even then. When you read through the book of Daniel and you read about Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, and all that, that's taking place in Babylon. That's taking place in a a country that's not their own. They're exiles. They're aliens. They're strangers dispersed in the land. And some of them made it back to the promised land, but some of them never did. Some of them lived out their lives and their children's 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 children remained in Babylon. Babylon or Assyria or other places where they were scattered. And so the Jewish people had to ask themselves, what does this mean? What do we do? God obviously was still, you know, around because Daniel was praying to God. Daniel was delivered by God even in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered by God even in Babylon. Ezekiel was receiving visions of God's holy glory, even when they were outside of the promised land. So we know that God exists outside of the promised land, but the promised land was something very special to the Jewish people. And so any of this early church group that were Jews, they really had to struggle with what do we do? You know, Jerusalem's way down there and we're way up here. And we know that God has always been most accessible in the promised land, in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And now here we are Christians, and uh, they're probably not even going to welcome us into the temple, first of all, because we've sort of abandoned the old-time religion. And we don't even really agree on how God is accessible anymore. And so Peter is writing to tell these people that though they're exiles, though they're aliens and strangers in the land, uh, they still have access to God. And in fact, their exile is a good exile. It's not a bad exile. The Israelites' exile was because they had sinned. They had turned against God. But in this passage, it doesn't say that they sinned and are exiled, but rather it's because they are chosen. In verse 1, it says that they are chosen, or your translation may say the elect exiles. God has chosen them for this purpose, for this scattering And it's part of his plan. He talked about what is their place in the redemptive plan. And part of their place is being scattered abroad. So let's look and uh, we see the who. Who are these people? They are exiles and aliens. Uh, The next thing is the where. And it says they are dispersed and scattered. And this makes it very unusual for them because the Jewish people had an epicenter for their faith. And that was at the the temple. Muslims, they've got a central location. You know, they pray towards Mecca. That's like the epicenter of their faith. Uh, And they 
they, uh, other religions in the world have a central location, a place that they call the motherland or the homeland, or maybe it's where their primary teacher resides. Christianity, when it began, it didn't have anything like that. There was no epicenter. There was no central location. The closest thing we have to an epicenter is Chick-fil-A. And uh, I hope to make a pilgrimage soon. But it's, it's different for the early church. They are completely different than the other religions that existed at the time. And so it's very unusual. And so that's the where. But the next question we've got to answer is why. Peter addresses why they have been scattered. Why they have been uh, put into exile. Why they are isolated in these little pockets. And why they are surrounded by darkness. What is the purpose of all this? Well, he says here in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's why. According to the foreknowledge. Now, right away... You, when you hear the word foreknowledge, you may think in terms of just simple reading the future, looking ahead and seeing what's going to happen. Uh, but that really doesn't answer the question then. Why it happened is because God saw that it was going to happen. Well, that, that's not helpful. No, the word foreknowledge oftentimes is a little more complicated than simple foreknowledge. And we could park here on this word and probably spend three or four Sundays. I don't have time for that, and so we're going to go through this rather quickly, but you're going to have to lean in a little bit here. You could get lost because we get into some uh, pretty deep thought. Foreknowledge here does not just mean predicting of the future, but rather it is a word describing how God orchestrates and plans out something. This word, the Greek word underlying our English word foreknowledge here, is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Acts 2.23, where Peter is preaching and talking about how they took Jesus, and uh, it says they took this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, Peter is saying, by using that word foreknowledge, that this was God's plan. Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan. Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. The plan for Jesus to go to the cross for the sins of men and women so that they could experience salvation if they would put their trust and faith in him, that has always been God's plan from the beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that evil men didn't play a part in it. It says that they crucified him, they hung him on the cross, but it is still, God has mapped this out. He has planned it out this way. Another really good illustration of this is you go back to the Old Testament to Joseph who was uh, plotted to be killed by his brothers, but instead they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And there he grows into a prominent figure and ends up saving the world and the Israelites from starvation. And Joseph at the end tells them, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. You see, God doesn't just see what's going to happen, but he's got his hands in it. God is working. You can't have true, just simple foreknowledge if you're involved in something. That's why they don't let referees gamble on games. okay? Because they can predict the future really well if they're blowing the whistle and they're calling the fouls. Okay? If you're playing a part in what happens, like God doesn't just respond to what we do. God doesn't just say, okay, I foreknew you were going to do X, Y, and Z, therefore I respond to that 
by doing this. No, because he did something before you did X, Y, and Z that caused you to do X, Y, and Z. He isn't just dipping his finger into the pool one time. Every time he intervenes in human history, he changes the trajectory of everything that's going to unfold. It's like the domino effect, but then he keeps stopping a domino and starting a new train. He could change anything that he wanted to throughout human history, but he allows it to transpire the way that it does. He could have made Adam and Eve with six eyes and 12 arms if he had wanted to. And that would have changed the way things unfolded throughout human history. You know, the guy that lost one arm and then he couldn't be a pro football player, that's not a problem anymore. He's got plenty to spare. Okay, human history would look different if God did things differently. But he has mapped it out. He has orchestrated it so that his plan unfolds the way he wants it to. Another quick example, if that didn't do it for you, uh, if you're from, you know, my generation, you grew up and sometime during the uh, 90s or maybe two, uh, probably around the 2000 era, a movie came out called The Matrix. Okay, some of you have seen this. Good, because Neo, the main character who's being propped up to be the savior, the hero, he's trying to find out who he is. And they are taking him to someone called the Oracle who can see the future. And he doesn't really buy into it because this lady is very unassuming when they get there. She's just baking cookies in her kitchen. She just looks like a regular person lady. And uh, so she's like, you don't believe me, do you? And he's like, no. Uh, she says, you know, don't worry about the vase. And he goes, what vase? And he turns and he knocks a vase over and it breaks. And he's like, how'd you know that I was going to do that? And she's like, I'm the oracle. She's like, what's really going to bother you later is would you have broke it if I didn't say anything? She, goes, she was involved in the breaking of the vase. It wasn't just simply predicting what was going to happen. It was her making a statement that caused him to do the thing. And that's how God is too. God doesn't just sit back like a deist God, start everything and watch and predict. No, the Bible tells us that he holds the whole world together. Not a molecule moves without his say-so. He causes the tides to come in and the tides to go out. He causes the sun to rise and the sun to set. He is in the whirlwind when a tornado comes through. He is sovereign over the affairs of men. He causes kings to rise and kings to fall, nations to rise, nations to fall. He doesn't just sit back and watch television called human history. He makes it. That's foreknowledge. Can't go any deeper than that right now. <laughs> Moving on. The next question. What? We see why this all happened, but what is, what is actually happening here? It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I skipped my verse again. I keep doing that. <laughs> it was verse 2 I was actually aiming for here. Uh, we see that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. This is a pretty important point, so that's why I didn't just move on. We are sanctified by the Spirit. Believers are. Part of their identity, part of this being in exile, being different than the world, being you know, completely alien to the world that they're in is because of the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. Every single person who's truly put their trust in Christ has the Holy Spirit residing in them, and He sanctifies you. And if that's a word you're not familiar with, that means He sets you apart to make you different. He sets you apart to make you holy so that you can obey 
Jesus Christ. That's what it said there. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. You can't obey Jesus Christ if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't want to obey Jesus Christ if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit in you creates a new nature. And a new nature that wants to do new things. You know, fish don't want to be on land. And some of you know that right now, right? Some of you have lost one off the hook and it got back in the water before you were able to bonk it on the head. They want to be in the water. They don't want anything else. You are like a fish in the water. I was like a fish in the water and the water was sin. We wanted that. It felt good. It felt right. It felt natural because we by nature are sinners. But if you have the Holy Spirit, he has somehow created inside that fish a desire to get out of the water, to get on the land and to commune with Christ. Something that would be completely distasteful otherwise. That's why they're aliens. The world doesn't think like them. The world thinks they're crazy and the world thinks you're crazy this morning. If you sit here in a pew this morning talking to Jesus of Nazareth, like you closed your eyes early and you talked to Jesus of Nazareth, then you're crazy. You're talking to someone who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. You think you're in a conversation with somebody who died 2,000 years ago. And believers are like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's normal. Well, it's not normal to them. They think you're a lunatic. And they always will. And they've put up with Christianity for a long time because this country had very many Christians and that was a very prominent belief set. But that's going away. It's shrinking. And it's more common to be a secularist than it is to be a theist. It's more common to say there is no God. And that's why all your textbooks that are distributed in your science classes and such tell you that there is no God because you can't observe it. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. And so... We're the lunatics. That's why we're exiles. That's why we're aliens. That's why we are strangers. But it is, it is the reason that God has called us out is so that he could put his Holy Spirit in us, so that we could believe, and so that we could honor Jesus Christ with our lives. Uh, and then finally, the how is what I read a second ago where it says in verse 3, that he did this according to his great mercy and has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Fish don't just automatically want to walk on land. It takes something miraculous for them to want to walk on land. God would have to intervene and change up some of the way that he designed that fish if he wanted them to walk on land. Well, you and I, because of our sin and because of what we have inherited from our fathers, 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 all the way back to Adam in the garden... We have a sinful nature, and it is only through the rebirth process, the born-again process, that we can overcome that temptation to sin. Now, you may not be familiar with what it means to be born again, but Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where they're talking about what Jesus came to do, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to see God, if you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you must be born again. And Nicodemus scratches his head and says, do I, I have to crawl back into my mother's womb and come back out? And Jesus is like, oh, that's, that's just gross. Stop. Okay? He says, no, obviously 
that's not what you're supposed to do. Obviously, I'm talking about a different kind of rebirth. And this being born again is being born of the Spirit. When you sinned for the first time, you severed your spiritual life, which was connected to a life source, God. God was the life source for your spirit. And when you sinned, you cut it off. And now it is dead. And as a result, the body is dying too. And the only way that you can reconnect back into the power supply is by being born again. And Jesus says that happens through the work of the Spirit in your life. You have to receive the Holy Spirit. You lost the Spirit. It died. You can get it back again only through putting faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and by the Spirit he was raised. And now the Spirit is accessible to every person who believes in him. If you believe, you can be restored to eternal spiritual life. Um, But without Christ, without the Spirit, you are spiritually dead. And this whole book of 1 Peter is focused around what being born again looks like. Born again is going to mean responding to suffering a certain way. It's going to mean identifying yourself a certain way. And Peter is going to flesh that out as we go. Uh, But we've got to get off this first point or we're not going to get out of here. Okay, so point number two in these next three are a lot faster. So being is not belonging. Suffering is not backsliding. First Peter verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. You see, Peter knows that the church is going through trials. He knows they're going through suffering, and he compares it to gold and fire, and the fire is making it more pure. It's going to accomplish a purpose as they pull off the dross and everything that surfaces to the top in the purification process of refining gold. The church is the same way. You go through suffering, you go through times of pain, you go through hurt and heartache for God's intended purpose. There are churches that are open today that are across the country and preachers are standing behind pulpits and they're telling their congregation that if they are suffering, it's because of a lack of faith. They are telling their congregants that God does not want them to suffer. And I scratch my head and wonder where in the world, in the Bible, did they find that? Because here Peter is telling them that suffering is a part of the everyday life of a Christian. The book of Philippians chapter 1 says it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. It's your gift. You get to be like Jesus. Jesus suffered, so you get to suffer. Christians are going to suffer in this world. The people that we are around are not going to see eye to eye with us. They are not going to accept what we believe as true. They're going to prosecute I get emails every day. I follow some of the legal battles that go on about Christianity, and every day we lose. Every day, somebody stands up for their faith and their convictions, and they don't participate in sinful activity or you know, a wedding that is not aligning with biblical principles. They won't bake the cake for the people. They won't make the flower bouquet for the people. They won't do whatever it is that God forbids them to do, and the courts continuously align with the world and not with the church. And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. We are usually a few years behind uh, France and over there and over there. It's insane. 
can't do anything religious or you get, you know, you get hit. Uh, I know it's, it's illegal to wear certain uh, garments like crosses and things like that in certain parts of the country over there. You just can't do it because they have embraced secularism. They have embraced a world that does not have religious belief. And we move that direction day after day. But our suffering in this world is not because of a lack of faith. You suffer for various reasons. Some people suffer because of their own sin. Absolutely. You know, you go out and you get drunk and you get in a car wreck and you lose an eye. That was your own fault. You know, you sinned. And, and even as a Christian, the Bible tells us that God disciplines those who we love. So you can be punished for sin, certainly. But generally speaking, most of your suffering is not because of your own sins. A lot of your suffering is because you live in a fallen world. Some of your suffering is because of other people's sin. And some of your suffering is just so that you can glorify God through your suffering. John Piper wrote a book saying don't waste your cancer or something like that because he believes that if you get cancer, you should use it for the glory of God. Show the world what it's like to be victorious even when you're facing the most devastating circumstances. And Peter's saying that in this book. The persecution they're going through, the trials they're going through, this is their opportunity to show the world that they don't just give lip service to God, but that they truly believe in Him. And no matter how bad things get, they're going to give their life to Christ. They're going to honor Christ with the strength that they have. They do not love God simply because of what He's given them, but because of who He is. And if He doesn't give them a single thing, they're going to honor Him nonetheless. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, you know, they were going to be thrown into the fire, literal fire, to burn up if they didn't bow down to a false god. And they said, you know, God can deliver us if he wants. And if he doesn't, we don't care. We'll just burn. That's the mentality that we need as a church. That's the boldness. That's how courageous we should be. If the world out there wants to kill us, then we say, so be it. If they persecute us, we say, so be it. We will not bow the knee. To bail. We will not bow the knee to secularism. We will not bow the knee to anything other than Jesus Christ. The next thing is seeing is not believing. Chapter 1 verse 8 through 9 says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He continues to harp on how they should rejoice in their suffering, but he brings to light the fact that we don't rejoice because we see God and we have this concrete motivation to honor him because he's standing right before us, um, even though he is standing right before us. But the fact is we can't see him. You can't put God in a test tube. Believing is not the same as seeing. Many have seen and not believed. Many walked with Jesus when he was on the earth and they didn't believe. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead and they didn't believe. They wanted to kill him and Lazarus because he rose him from the dead. The devil watched God make the stars and the moon and the sky and he didn't believe. He believes he's there but he doesn't believe in the fact that he loves and trusts and follows him and honors him. And so seeing, if you've ever said, well, if I could just see God, I'd believe in him. That's not true. Many have seen and many have refused to believe. Our faith is what saves us. Our trust in Christ is what saves us. And yes, we can point to evidence around us. It's a, a 
a theological discipline called apologetics. And we can look for those pieces of evidence, but you're not going to have a faith built on that. Faith is something that is born of the Spirit. Faith is something that is granted by God and is something that you can't like rationalize yourself to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. It is something that we have that is not based on our senses and our sight. And the final thing that we have in this passage uh, as we wrap up today is that preaching is not babbling. Preaching is not babbling. And some of you may think, "Eh, well, the proof's in the pudding here, preacher. Get it done. Um, But I, I want to challenge you here that preaching, and I'm not just saying this because I'm up here, but it is a God-ordained enterprise. Okay, That doesn't make me special by any sense of the word, but it makes the activity of preaching very, very special. And we should never diminish that. There are churches that reduce the sermon down to five minutes you know, so that they can have all the other fun stuff when the fact is that God called people to preach. He, he chose preaching to be the vessel by which men and women would be saved. The Bible says that no one can believe unless they hear and no one can hear unless a preacher has been sent to them. Uh, Peter here says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. See, the prophets in the Old Testament were involved in the discipline of preaching. They preached and proclaimed what God had laid on their heart, mind, and soul. They went out and they gave the message that God had given to them. That's what prophesying is. If you ever take a spiritual gifts test and it says that you're a prophet, it doesn't mean that you can tell the future. It means that when God tells you something, you tell other people. That's what I've been gifted with and that's what I'm called to do is to proclaim to you what God has revealed to me through his word. And that's the process called preaching. And it is the, the means by which the church grew, blossomed, and flourished. And now here we are, thousands and thousands of miles from Jerusalem, worshiping God together under the preaching of the word of God. Preaching is a necessary component to our faith. Please do not ever diminish that role. And don't diminish it even in, you know, I've People don't mean anything by it, but I've had many preachers tell me that this really rubs them raw when someone comes out and they say something like, good talk or good speech. It's like, this isn't a talk. This isn't a speech. This is a sermon. This is preaching. It's different. This isn't a politician standing behind a lectern and spouting off his agenda for the next four years. This is someone that God has called trying to the best of their ability to wrestle with the items that God has put on the page through the inspiration of the Spirit and to convey them to the people. And then the Holy Spirit starts about right here to fix all the errors and to distribute them to your minds and hearts. It's bigger than speeches. It's bigger than talks. It's the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not babbling. It goes on to say here, In verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you 
through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The gospel was not a human enterprise. It was not a human invention, but rather it was God sent. God ordained. He ordained not just the words and the message that was put down, but the people that are going to take it and the people that are going to spread it through proclaiming the goodness in the churches. It says in verse 12 there, it used the word revealed. You can't see God. You can't see Jesus Christ. You can't tangibly you know, reach out and physically touch him right now. He is not available in that way. But he can still be revealed to you. And that revelation comes through preaching. Through the proclamation of the gospel. And angels in heaven who can see God are jealous. They're jealous of preaching. They're jealous of these sermons because they don't quite understand the profound mystery of redemption like you and I do. They don't know what it's like to have been lost and be found. And they watch from heaven and they observe as men and women sit under the gospel and people that are wayward and antagonistic towards God and the church suddenly break apart before him and give their hearts to him they envy that they, they look into that and they say what in the world what's happening there it's not better to be lost and then be found don't get me wrong but they envy knowing and understanding what we know we know the depth and richness of god's love in ways angels never will it's one of the reasons that we one day will rule over angels it says because we will have an understanding of God's mercy in ways that they never can. We are in the world, but we do not belong. We may suffer, but it does not mean that our faith has backslidden. We may not see God, but we believe in God. And we have the weapon of preaching in our arsenal. It is not babbling, but it is the means of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together in your word. And I pray as we conclude the service today that uh, you would be honored. You would be glorified. I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that it would be the preaching that reaches into their heart and mind and, and brings, a form, brings the transformation that is only possible by the work of the Spirit. Lord, illuminate in our minds that which you want us to know and that which you want us to take out of this room this morning. Help us to be transformed. Lord, help us to be challenged and changed. And Lord, let us be bold in our faith. Let us not care about what the world says about us. Let us not mind what the world does to us, but rather let us glorify you in all we do and say. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand together as... We sing a song of invitation.